Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and uh, joining me via Zoom again today is uh, fresh off the plane from Canada, uh, Peter Cat, who I believe is still adjusting to, to time zones. Is that correct, Peter? Uh, yes, well, it's the, it's the lack of light in the evening that's really disturbing me today. Uh, two days ago, it was still light at 10.15, and here we are, and it's pitch black at 6. Well, it did look like an amazing uh, Canadian trip following Peter Katz's Facebook posts uh, as he was over there. Uh, Sue Grimmett and I, meanwhile, uh, have not been uh, journeying overseas like you have been, Peter. We're just here doing our usual thing, aren't we, Sue? Currently, yes, sitting in a, um, in a very dark part and, and chilly part of Brisbane, un- unlike other podcasts when it's been it's been quite hot. We had the, mm. our last one I just listened to. We were we were talking about it being very hot, yes. so it's been quite quite a chilly autumn. Well, as we move through the cold weather here, Sue, we are jumping uh, to the Northern Hemisphere today to somebody enjoying the very beginnings of summer. Uh, Dr. Catherine Wilcox is a teacher of creative writing at Manchester Metropolitan University. She holds a PhD in theology and is also the author of a number of novels exploring life in the Church of England under the pen name Catherine Fox. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the On The Way podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's lovely to, to be here. In a very different, uh, it's very light here. It's uh, <laughs> the first day of June and we're just heading into summer. I've never made it to Manchester myself before, Catherine. What is a Manchester summer like? <laughs> Manchester is notorious for rain. I'm, I'm actually about an hour and a bit away from Manchester in Sheffield, which is another northern town in the UK. Uh, and my commute to work by train takes me through some of the most beautiful countryside that England has to, to offer, which is the Peak District. Um, but a lot of rain. Yeah, a lot of rain. <laughs> well, we are so delighted that you have joined us today. Uh, you are somebody who we've been talking a bit about between the three of us in recent months. Uh, it was actually Sue who introduced both Peter and I to your books uh, Sue's been raving about them um, for a while now to us as, as something that she's profoundly enjoyed. So I might actually throw to you to, to sort of begin the conversation today, Sue. What is it in, in Catherine's novels uh, that, that has really resonated with you? Oh, yeah, I found, found the Linchester Chronicles and it was like for me a bit of a rediscovery of the joy of fiction because I think as a clergy person you often spend a lot of time reading heavy theology and, and you know, wonderful theology and good philosophy and history and uh, fiction can kind of slide back down the reading list in amongst our busy lives. And so picking this up, um, not only was it a great fiction, it also was set in a world that I know and that I love, you know, and to actually have fictional characters um, revealing some truths about that world, it was safe kind of to speak some of the truths about the world through these fictional characters' eyes. And it also, I think, you know, portrayed the Anglican church in all its um rather unholy unholy mess sometimes you know that that it could be in that mess and yet there would still um through this story that you sketched profound uh hope to be found in the the grace love and forgiveness that was shining through the stories so uh for me it was a very revealing thing it was just good fun and uh helped me to see some of my own territory even though it's in the australian context in in a new light 
And I guess it's a really interesting example of the the whole idea of the sideways glance uh, in the sense that, you know, we often have um, amazing theologians and, and uh, speakers in that sense on the podcast talking at these big mysteries of life sort of head on uh, in, in a sense. But we have spoken about things like poetry, music and art. And how they, they kind of give you a way at getting at these truths from, from the sideways glance and sometimes in a way that, that enables you to see things more truthfully, more clearly and more accurately um, when, you, when you do come at them from an angle rather than instead uh, of coming at them straight on. And I think that's something that you've spoken about with Catherine's work uh, is that it, it feels like it captures a lot of these questions about what it is to be exploring life in a, a spiritual tradition in 2023 in all of its uh, wonders and, and pitfalls, maybe, uh, in, in a really beautiful, honest, humane way. Yeah, and I think I just a safer place to tell those truths, you know. I, I yeah. think that was by creating these fictional characters, Catherine, I love the fact that there was this truth-telling going on in amongst some some just good humour and a, a um, and a love of people too, that I think you must have. have enough. Good. Yeah. I'm glad that comes across. Good. Yes. I think you captured pretty much what I was setting out to do uh, mm. in writing these books. Um, just that great drive to tell a story and to tell a story to my tribe, I think. <laughs> um, there's a lot of pressure um, that, that drives authors, I think, coming from outside, external to what we really really need to write about that comes from the marketing departments of big houses um so it, the bottom line is will we be able to sell this uh, and and increasingly the answer was we cannot sell stories about the church of england nobody wants to read it <laughs> so um i'm just immensely lucky and i've really woken up to this increasingly in the last year or two really lucky to have got this uh, partnership with spck where they let me write what I want to write. There's nobody saying, mm, I'm not sure your readers will understand. Think, well, they will. They will understand because I'm writing for them. Um, and I think it's clarified for me that, I'm, I'm, that you cannot write for all markets. You cannot set out to write a bestseller, a word of mouth, a runaway success, because you've got no control over that. So tell your story to, to your readership. And if other people want to listen in, which which increasingly they do, I think, then that's great. But but I'm not going to be explaining everything for this imagined um, universal reader, which uh, when you decode that usually means white middle class British. <laughs> so um, so that's been just such a joy and so liberating. I'm, I'm not having to try and not write about the Church of England, which I did at one stage, or, or trying to write in a way that's... Um, quote unquote accessible to the non-expert it's meant to be a hospitable space come in come in and find out what what the weir weird world of faith feels like from the inside and the way that that I hope to do that is is as you say through these characters who love of people they may they may be people with a different slice of experience i.e Anglican cathedrals, which is a weird world, <laughs> even for your average Anglican punter. But but um, you know because they're recognisably human, uh, and their hearts beat the same way as every heart beats. We 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 want love. We want to feel safe. We want to be understood. We want to be creative, um, mm -hmm. uh, and that is it. That is the universal thing. Um, the 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 circumstances and the particularities will vary. But, but people can be drawn into stories about people 
And I just think we're really hungry to find out about these other worlds. Mm. Um, it was just boring to read about your, the, the, you know, people like like you. Why not find out about people in another part of the globe or uh, a completely different slant on life? Because it extends our own empathy. Mm. Um, and I think that's, as, as you say, that's you can you can come sideways at these big questions. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's a safe space because no one's going to shout at you because they don't know what you're thinking when you read a novel. If you're thinking, oh, I'd never thought of that before, for a, before what, what outside might look like a kind of bigoted piece of thinking, you think, oh, okay, I kind of get where they're coming from. So, but no one's going to police that and shout at you. Um, so, so you can experiment in that safe, private space of the novel with new ideas. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, look, we're going to jump into the novels themselves in a moment and some of what you do cover in there. Uh, before we do that, though, I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about uh, your background as a writer. I mentioned the, the PhD in theology a bit earlier, but it does seem, looking at your life story, that um, creative writing and fiction writing has maybe always been the, the first love. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, your background as a writer? Yeah, sure. Um, I, th- I, I was one of those little girls that was always w- trying to write stories and novels. I think it grew out of having a very rich, imaginative life um, uh, and possibly the dynamic of being one of four daughters and everyone just kind of lumped us together. Oh, you're one of the Humphreys girls. And I was thinking, no, I want to be the most exciting, most brilliant Humphreys girl. <laughs> you know, I want to stand out. <laughs> so in, in the privacy of my own head, I could create narratives in which I was always the fastest, the the cleverest, the one who could climb trees, and uh, and or, or be living in Sherwood Forest with Robin Hood and his merry men and shoot and shoot arrows and all this stuff. And no nobody could. There were no limits to what I could do. So I think that that kind of fan, fantasy world, an extension of just playing games that all children do. I've never fully grown out of it. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and I, in the 60s and early 70s, when I was at primary school, there was no national curriculum that schools had to follow. So, so some, we were, to some extent, kind of free-range researchers. We'd go off and do projects on trees or, or write stories, and, and I just spent all my time writing stories mm. to the extent that one teacher said to me, Catherine, you can't spend your whole life writing stories or writing novels. <laughs> huh. I like to think I've been wrong. <laughs> yeah, but but then I so I, I um, read English at Durham University. That was my first degree, and then sort of slid sideways by a series of strange decisions into the theology department. Um, and that experience of writing a PhD um, kind of for that time cured me of ever wanting to be an academic <laughs> um, so I left I left the academy so I'm, I'm never again uh, I'm going to write novels um, and at that point I think I'd, I'd realized that uh, it just occurred to me what what if my primary vocation is to be a novelist and that as a good non-conformist in, in roots and background, <laughs> that was a, a completely revolutionary thought that God might be calling me to do something that I enjoy and that I'm good at. Because <laughs> I think all my all my kind of early training was that if that if, if if you were good at something and you enjoyed it, it was probably sinful. <laughs> 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 so, 
so so that just burst like like sunshine coming out from behind the cloud oh maybe i'm allowed to do this maybe it's okay and 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 that was a real turning point and that sustained me really through through the years of ups and downs of, of the writing life um and then um about 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I started looking for university jobs to teach creative writing. So coming back into the academy through a very different door as, as a practitioner rather than uh, someone who is a, an expert in 17th century Quakerism, which is what I ended up being. Um, uh, so, so yes, it's, it's been the threads which seemed to be completely distinct and different from one another have now rewoven um, so the the academic side and and the creative writing have have been united in my my um, in the last eleven years of teaching at Manchester Met. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm just so struck by that comment you just made, Catherine. That uh, that maybe things that we're good at and things that we enjoy doing might actually be uh, a pretty clear indication, a pretty clear hint of of what we're here to do, and and we can overcomplicate it so much by worrying about um you know whether or not we're fully meeting what the world needs or whether we're addressing all the major issues going on globally uh you know whereas fundamentally that the biggest clue maybe each of us have about our chip in the mosaic is what is it that brings us alive um you know and following that thread it's so bizarre how how we we've sort of lost that intuitive knowledge isn't it i think particularly from an evangelical background we're, we're slightly dogged by that um suspicion of, of the flesh <laughs> if you like it it's it's going to be sinful yeah yeah i think that's right we get really bound by by life really um mm. as, as if there's a certain certain um nihilism that can come out of out of some understandings of the christian faith that it's about denying everything. And the idea of deny, denying oneself can be so uh, corrupted, I think, to the point where we actually almost wish that we hadn't existed. I find it um, really amazingly debilitating. And the idea that we created good and beautiful, and you know, we're just about to celebrate Trinity Sunday, which is all about dynamism and creativity, and being made in the image of the one who creates constantly, um, I, th I think that we really do need to celebrate the creative gifts as being expressions of the divine. And if we're made in the divine, in the image of the divine, then if your creative talent can be expressed, then that's that's you manifesting God to the world. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. I I agree. I, I also remember around that time at the early days of me thinking of myself seriously as a novelist um i was i was thinking about the genesis accounts of creation mm. um, and when god had finished doing a chunk of <laughs> i made the light every time and god said it's good it's good and i thought well if we're reflecting the glory in the image of god then when we create something we are allowed to say that's pretty good. I did yeah. a good job there, and that yeah. is amazing because yeah. it's partly, um, yeah, I think it's it's a recognition that that the that the creativity we have isn't something we've cleverly invented. We may have worked really hard at it, and that's to be celebrated as well. 
but but um, we're it's 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 becoming that channel. It's that process of not just not getting in the way of of mm. God, I think, and allowing these wonderful things to happen. So most writers, and I think probably m- most creative people, will, will say there are those sublime moments when what appears is is beyond what you had any conscious control of, mm. over. And, yeah, and that's that. like flying. It's amazing when that happens. And, and you think, and, and it's almost like, I can't believe I have that in me. Mm. And the sense that it's coming from beyond or up from the subconscious that we have no direct control over. Um, but definitely, you're right, to be celebrated um, right. and just doing okay. what God does. And sometimes when we find it, um, create, we have to work hard to be creative. I think it gives us an insight into God as well, that God actually works really hard at bringing the creation into being. It's not just... <laughs> It's not just need, need a day off afterwards. Yeah, but it's it's not just this sort of oh well let's just do this. It it is actually God putting the whole of God's being into mm. it. And that's what love yeah. is. And, you know, if we pouring, really, pouring it out. Pouring it out, that's right. Yeah. Unstintingly yeah. because it's love, you know, and my favorite one of my favorite hymns is one that begins, um, a steadfast lover is the Lord. Um, a spendthrift lover is the Lord. That oh wow, that's absolutely over the top generous. And one of the lines yeah. is that the generosity of God is hinted at by the stars. So we've got yeah. Stars and and it's only a hint of the the blind generosity and creativity. There's a wonderful, wonderful poem by Thomas Traherne called Allurement. Do you know this one? Mm. Where uh, that God allures people, but the way that and and it's just heaping up images of uh, the way a mother tries to you know trying to win a smile from from a baby. Uh, and, and just pouring out endless uh, endearments and, and whatever, lavishing love on the child and, until eventually the child beams back. And it's, and it's in that moment is, is mm. everything that the mother was, was, was looking for. Um, and that through creation, that's what God's doing all the time, mm. all the time. And there's uh, a wonderful line in that where it's the Holy Spirit is a secret agent too, um, and and kisses the ear that to his mouth's inclined. So we're listening for God to mm. whisper something, and then God kisses Isn't kisses that. that. That's just such a amazing yeah. amazing image of uh, and very erotic mm. um, and and physical and affective. It it, it calls up our emotional responses um, in a way that, you know, was not a dominant theme in, in my chapel upbringing, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> but I think most of us had those those moments of, of sort of <laughs> divine intimacy, but but didn't have a category for it, really. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so so um, hymns and poems and writing that, that open the door to that, and give names to it, I think are wonderful. Mm. I think it's really interesting you're talking about direct control too, you know, that there's this flow in creativity that mm. we can sense, you know, that comes from God in us. 
And yet so often we try to seize control when we're trying to solve the problems of the church. And we, you know, you know, I, I think and and fiction might be seen as something lightweight, but it's actually so far from that compared as it, you know, fiction and and the way you're telling these stories can be a way to, to peace and bed and, and understanding. You know, the the you know, sure as heck we're not making peace by controlling debates <laughs> and going at each other in, you know, mm. in this t- didactic and and kind of obvious way of 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 just dealing with polarities and trying to fight it out you know that's not the way to peace um you know what if we allowed you know gave up some of that direct control and allowed that flow of creativity to take us somewhere new to lift us to some higher ground and i i really found myself thinking about that as i read your novels thinking you know what a different um feel and a different energy there was when thinking exploring some of the issues in the church yeah what was interesting particularly was the the fact that i i didn't write the whole novel and then spck published it that was my my methodology was I say, I say to my students, I do not recommend this. So I was blogging it in, in mostly in weekly instalments. So the, the most recent one, which has just been published, The Company of Heaven, I was blogging in monthly instalments because I wrongly thought that would be less pressure. <laughs> but anyway, so each week um, I would post on my blog the, the new instalment. So it worked a bit like a soap opera for the C of E, really, um, or, or wider Anglicanism. Um, and... I could then sort of track to some extent how it was landing. So, so through on on Twitter in particular, but also a little bit on Facebook um, and on the blog comments, people would leave their response. Like if there was a cliffhanger, I would get harangued. Like, no, you can't do this to us. <laughs> Did that person survive? <laughs> and the answer almost always is yes, yes, because I don't. I'm not in the business of killing off my characters. It's not the Game of Thrones. Uh, dynamic where you just got invested in someone and then they get killed <laughs> um so so i could if someone started saying things like oh freddie is really annoying me then i would think oh, okay okay so he's been too annoying in, in recent installments i will include a paragraph or a section in the next chapter that helps the reader understand why he's so driven so so that i could kind of correct as i went along and, and and also, so we have obviously this thing about you know good disagreement is is a big thing um, in the Church of England. Like we absolutely disagree with one another on same sex marriage, for example. But we don't just um, hide in our bunkers and, and lob grenades at one another. We actually try and disagree in a in a in a way that sort of reflects the grace and courtesy that that we hope to embody. Um, but of course, that that's to some, it can be a bit of a myth. Um, so. So I, um, yes, I got a, a kind of, in, in the third book, I think it was, I've got a, a new bishop who's evangelical and, and, and someone who in the UK who's, who's quite a um, same-sex marriage campaigner um, said, I almost, almost found myself sympathising with the bishop in this instalment. Yeah. And wow. I said, well, I'm, I said, next week I will make you sympathise with him. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. said, well, good luck with that. And then next week he said, yeah, yeah, actually, I, I almost, I, yeah, I, I kind of did. I suppose this might be what good agree- good disagreement feels like. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so I can, you know, through the, me- the method of blogging, um, keep tabs on how it's going and, and 
try consciously to increase people's empathy for characters who they disagree with. Um, and by, by extension then, I'm, I'm hoping that in the real world, <laughs> mm. people might, there might be some, some crossover that, that, that people having exercised that muscle in the, in the gym of fiction, yes. they might then be able to just, just cut people a little bit more slack. Mm. It's really hard though when, when you think someone's profoundly wrong and they're being disagreeable and offensive and 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 just plain wrong <laughs> to mm. cut them any kind of slack. But but I think a novel helps us to be able to do that a bit. Well, I guess uh, like there are therapeutic forms like this as well, like forum theatre is a, mm. a form where you can stand in and take you know the role of someone with whom you disagree, and you have yes, to okay. and so yeah. that is. A a therapeutic form um and so that the novel is a way of i guess you can be doing that by yourself really yeah it, interestingly someone one of my colleagues at uh, the writing school in at manchester met said um well i was talking about my my methodology that i have this big cast of characters and he said oh it's a bit like having your own company of actors then that you can try out this new plot this new play on your characters and i went yeah exactly that is what it's like that's, and that's really in, in the most recent novels where I haven't had a, a, a traditional plot at all. I've had a few themes and, and some very slender strands which I intend to uh, 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 sort of un unpick or, or, or work through across the whole arc of the novel. But basically, no, no plot, just what's happening in the world. So mm. in 2026, that was um, the, the Brexit um, stuff in in the uk and then trump coming to power in the states i never set out to write about those things <laughs> but there i was kind of locked into it because my my premise was if my characters would be talking about it then i will weave it into the novel so just to give it that sense of verisimilitude that this is really happening like a soap opera um but but in the end and then of course i i took a break after 2016 thinking never again and then after four years, I thought, well, I'll have another go. So then it was 2020. So I ended up blogging the, the pandemic, basically. Mm. Um, so uh, so the, those staying close to the characters and thinking, well, what would they be doing? Mm. And using that as a way of working out what I'm thinking and feeling. And then uh, other people who, you have to be said, people who are broadly speaking, experiencing the pandemic the way I was were able to think, okay, it's somehow it's been, by, by it being fictionalised, some kind of meaning or, or gathering up has happened through the fiction that then I now feel a bit better about what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. So it's an extraordinary process that I didn't really set out to do this, but, but it felt like a shared journey, really, um, by, by blogging in instalments. Mm. You, you make your characters um, some of the most multi-dimensional characters I've ever experienced, um, because that because you have that wonderful dynamic of there's something really big's happening, some big project that someone has to focus on, but at the same time, uh, in the back of their head, or they're dealing with some other minutiae or relationship, and they're doing what 
um, we all have to do, and we have to manage have to manage the stuff that's expected of us, plus all the stuff that just comes out of left field and sort of you know. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with the pet getting sick and um, the neighbour needing, yeah. neighbour needing, the neighbour needing sort of um, a, a bit of a hand, and this is all sort of, and you weave all of that in so, so beautifully, and then occasionally the the narrator comes in and sort of tidies things up for us, and then <laughs> <laughs> yes, the narrator. <laughs> and I think that narrator plays Some people really. People love the narrator. Oh. Some hate that. Um, I think the narrator is so important, um, partly because um, one of the themes that we explore uh, often in the podcast is the idea of the inner village, and I, I think the narrator helps helps us get a sense of perspective and reminds us that there are times when we actually need to have our own narrator um ask us to take a little bit of a stand back and look at ourselves. And um, mm-hmm. so I, th- I think you're uncovering a really important spiritual um, practice by having the narrator. That's, because that's interesting. I had not thought of that. I would not thought of that. So the, the narrator basically came from my envy of Victorian novelists who had the freedom <laughs> To break the fourth wall and 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 kind of seize the reader by the lapels and say, "Listen, here's what I want you to understand," and and can, can lecture them a little bit, explain stuff that had become deeply, deeply unfashionable in in creative writing teaching circles that where we we're all we're all about show not tell, um, and uh, it, you know you the the pressure to write in a way that that conceals the wiring behind the walls and and uh, um gets rid of all trace of, of the author actually crafting the book so so and and that, that i think i i'd been that should become quite tyrannical for me so the 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 plot line of acts and omissions came from a failed novel that i tried repeatedly to write in that style um to select one central protagonist who in stay in close third person uh, and the whole world is mediated through their consciousness, um, and I could I couldn't do it. And it came the the breakthrough came um, from a conversation with a colleague. We were, we'd been teaching together on um, a unit called Reading Novels One, which had one of the novels we were looking at was The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, and and this colleague said, well, well, basically that's not show don't tell. That's flat out tell all the way through. Um, and it was like a light bulb moment. So I thought, that's what I need to be doing. Mm. I just need to have the confidence to um, pick up that piece of paper which says "show don't tell," screw it up, and throw it in the bin, um, <laughs> and be. And it was so liberating to. So I just felt like so. Hence the imagery of flying throughout the books. He's the narrator does just mounts up on eagle's wings and flies. They look at the whole of the diocese of Winchester and zoom from one place to the next. Um, and say, and now I'm going to take you into this vicarage where, please bear with Father Dominic, he is rather drunk. Um, and that, to me, that was so playful and 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 powerful uh, mm-hmm. after, um, you know, trying to hide myself from, from the reader and just kind of um, drip feed little bits of information so you gradually pick up the impression, ah, this must be a vicar. Ah, look, he seems to be a bit drunk. Um, and and 
so so that's really there was no kind of theorizing theologically about what what role the narrator might have but it, it instantly divided readers between those who loved it uh, and those who said um i can't i can't it, it disrupts my ability to believe in the characters because constantly i'm being reminded that that they're invented and i um i also think it added uh um relationality to the book it felt like really? uh i was okay. in conversation with you really and, and i there was one time that i was driving because i listened the first book i came across on on audible originally um oh, and you um, my actual voice lecturing yes you. <laughs> i have your i've been listening to you for some yes <laughs> So I'm driving along listening. I think it was a certain moment when a certain um, would-be bishop had a pink yo-yo fall out of his pocket before an interview um, and it was going to mean something else. And I actually let out this sort of, I was so engrossed in the story, I let out this involuntary kind of strangled gasp and you said something like, oh, you panic far too easily, dear reader. And I was like, <laughs> it was like we had this this wonderful dialogue going on. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah okay well good i'm glad that landed well yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. um but also I mean, um, <laughs> another another writer um pointed out that so so this is francis spufford whose work you might also know um uh also a, fe a fellow anglican novelist there aren't that many of us um but but he'd written a, an article basically saying that that the the era in which we could write um, like Trollope about about the Church of England or Barbara Pym writing, you know, assuming that the broad um, readership in in the UK would understand what we meant by a canon, for example, said that you, there's not a shared understanding. The church has receded to the margins of society. It's probably not possible for anyone to write like this about the church again. And then he had to add a footnote saying, since I published this, uh, uh, since I gave this lecture, it was then becoming a, a book, he said, there is an, there's a, now an exception to this rule. And, and that Catherine Fox has managed to do this by using the, the device of the narrator who can say, you know, sit comfortably, reader, I'm now going to dump a whole load of Anglican facts on you. Mm. So, so, so I think he's right. You cannot write this kind of novel by that drip feeding um, self-effacing authorial method because the, the, there's so much that's unknown that you'd have to hint at for the reader to work out for themselves that the whole narrative starts to groan under the, the weight of all this hinting and, not, not, and showing not telling. It, it, it clogs it up. So I know he's right because I tried to write it like that. It can't mm. be done. Well, not by me. You either just have to give up the idea of... Um, of of uh, anything other than the absolute tiny hardcore minority of cathedral goers understanding what you're writing or you need some kind of device that allows you to tell and mm. why not just celebrate that and, mm. and but the interesting thing comes is that people do collapse the distance between that narrative voice and me as a as a private individual and that yeah. has so I did get harangued at one point in, in the blog comments by someone who was extremely put out that I'd had a go, such a go at evangelicals, a hatchet job on evangelicals for enjoying. Now, now this bizarrely is one of the most divisive things of all the divisive things I write about. Right. This one has heads the field and it's 
whether you should sing Be Thou My Vision in 4-4, oh, not 3-4, slain in 4-4. And you would not believe the vitriol that <laughs> poured out in that particular debate. But, but I'd, so, so the, the narrative voice, the, the narrator had, had um, in talking in we, 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 dis, you know, we despise it, we, our toes curl whenever, blah, blah, blah. And so she thought that this was me personally slagging off <laughs> slain in 4-4 and and it ruined her experience of church that morning so so um and i so i i, I took some time before i responded to that <laughs> um but but more temperately than my in, initial reaction to being criticized which is always uh, visceral and, and hate-filled <laughs> until i've got over myself um so i said well uh, i'm sorry if 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 that did ruin your um, your morning of worship. Um, personally, I I quite like singing Slain in Four <laughs> Four, um, and you know, coming coming as I do from an evangelical background. And then the response came, oh, oh, okay, I get it. You're an evangelical, okay. Satire. Oh, now it's okay. So it was really interesting mm. um, that people sometimes miss the satirical. Yeah, and I think there's something really interesting in that, Catherine, as well, about this sense that when we move uh, from story back into the space of, of opinion and what our opinions are, things seem, seem to sort of harden up a little bit again. It's almost like we lose the freedom that we had when we were dealing with it as story. Now that we're dealing with opinion again, everything becomes a lot more rigid and, and divisive, um, and, and we lose that, that playfulness or at least that, that sense of openness. Yeah, and that the distance between... The, the narrator and me is, is is very easy for people to collapse that and think that's what she actually thinks. But it, the, the the we who, who do I who does the narrator mean by we? And, and mm. quite often that that signals we're we're in we're in satire. Mm. Um, um, and and um, I was asked once. I think this is at the Church Times Literary Festival. You know, do do you you know people have said that you 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 take a you take cheap shots at evangelicals. What's your reaction to that? And I so I said, well, I think that's unfair, really, because I I try really hard to take cheap shots at everybody, <laughs> <laughs> but even-handed <laughs> cattiness. <laughs> so it's partly mischief, but but. Um, I, I think it's just that that if you're a novelist, you probably spent a lot of time, first of all, navel gazing, looking mm -hmm. at yourself, thinking, why why do I react like that? What is it that makes me so defensive when someone, for example, leaves a negative comment on my blog or points out I've got a fact wrong? <laughs> so so what is it about me that that leaps to my own defense? Um, why, where is that coming from? And then I can I can trace it back to all sorts of things. Partly just human nature. Nobody really likes that. But why why is why why this kind of urgency? This real preoccupation with being right and proving myself right. And, and you know, as I say, I, I reflect on that, and then that can um, lead me to reflect on what's driving other people. I may or may not be right about it, but I do do a lot of thinking about that sort of thing. So spotting the foibles and weaknesses of other people, as well as of myself, um, means that you're, you're predisposed to uh, this capacity to write satirically. 
or to create characters that make people go, oh, I know someone just like that. Or, yeah, or to feel, ah, yeah. oh, I do that as well, don't I? And that's, uh, um, so we, we, we it, it's years, decades of people watching and internal scrutiny that goes into that. So, so sometimes, so someone else did say to me that, that reading my novels made her go, ouch, as if she was being pinched. But she said, but overall, I, I sensed that behind it, there was a kindness. And I thought, oh, oh, good. Because I, I hope to, to have that combination of, broadly speaking, being kind, mm. yet occasionally poking people. <laughs> mm. uh, sometimes out of mystery, sometimes out of real anger. So there's that spectrum of satire from the, is it juvenile and Horace who are meant to kind of be the, the extremes of, of traditional types of satire, one where you just savage people and one where you just gently poke fun. Um, so occasionally when it's, it's, it's political um, iniquity, <laughs> that, then, I, then, then the, the satire can be quite biting. And, of course, then that doesn't land well with people who support the party, political party that I'm satirising. So I had one blog comment which said, um, and I think this was an Amazon review before I stopped reading Amazon reviews. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> <laughs> a, friend, a colleague of mine said, oh, those are for readers, not for writers. You don't, don't read those. Don't read those. Same with Goodreads. But it said, um, I, couldn't, um, I couldn't stand the constant um, political, um, you know, uh, um, kind of attacking the Tory party. It's really important for the narrator to be neutral. I thought, I'm not trying to be the BBC here. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have to be neutral. I'm, I'm, I'm writing out of real anger and mm. that's shared by a lot of people. This is particularly around what we call party gate uh, in the UK, which was the, the revelations that that while most of us were, were trying really hard to adhere to the rules of lockdown, there were parties going on in 10 Downing Street. Mm. So there was a lot of national anger over this. And that just bubbled up in through the characters in, in the novel, but also through, through the narrator. And then it probably is true to say that the distance between the narrative voice and me was not very great at that point. But it, mm. uh, yeah, so I, I'm don't, I don't at all uh, aim to be neutral to be neutral is to not care and you know well, this is and, all and stuff also, about I mean, which we care most deeply i mean for goodness yeah yes. yeah and it, i think that's partly this this myth that's still current in academic circles that is a way of of writing academic writing which is universal and, and neutral and objective yeah um, and and which, yes in, but in that in itself is a position Yes, because of, <laughs> yeah, and informed informed subjectivity is the best best we can do. Yeah. Yes, I think so. And supporting and, your points, as I say to my students, yeah. <laughs> support. And, yeah, and I don't care. It's a strongly held opinion. If you can yeah. demonstrate what's led to that, even if I disagree, I think okay, you've made a good point. You've supported it. Um, mm. I'd rather that than arguably, which is the thing that I really don't like to see in, in assignments. Or it could be argued that, and so I always pounce on that. So who's arguing that? Yeah. Off the fence. <laughs> and I think coming back to that that idea of of story, um, you know, that we've been talking about as well. The other thing that that I find really helpful in conversations is when we start at the place of story, 
it makes it much easier to understand how people maybe have come to certain positions that they've landed at. Um, I, I always remember talking to someone who uh, was a very conservative voter, voted quite differently to me. And I just uh, probably for a few years, our conversations uh, on politics would have been um, these very sort of opinion based uh, disagreements. And we didn't really make any progress at all. I don't think uh, he could see why I saw things the way I did. I couldn't see why he saw things the way he did. And then when he tells stories of, um, you know, growing up in a place where, or in, a, in an environment that didn't feel entirely safe and you never quite knew if you'd be able to bank on uh, the next meal being on the table. And, and all he wanted was a sense that if he worked hard, that he'd be able to, to run his world and, and look after the people he loved. And the moment that that came through in story, it, it was like I totally understood him uh, in a way that, that I never was going to be able to just by hearing his rational arguments or, or his opinions. Story sort of opened something up. Is, is that something that you've tried to do, maybe, Catherine, in the book with people or characters who, who represent viewpoints maybe you don't necessarily agree with yourself? Yes, and I think it's sometimes we, we live in such narrow segments of society or church that meeting people different from ourselves can be really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and a novel can gather up very, very different voices and experiences, um, which is a tension for me um, it sometimes feels a bit like a tightrope between wanting to have representation of all these different voices, um, different social backgrounds, different ethnicities, um, without writing over and appropriating stories and experiences that aren't my own. Mm. Um, and I, I, I give a lot of thought to that. Um, and I, I, my sense is that that I have to overcome a real timidity because I'm scared people are going to say, how dare you write about that uh, uh, mixed race or black experience when you're white? Or how dare you write about um, trans people when, you, when you're not trans? And, and I, 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 I don't think, aha, I'm going to appropriate this story and write it into my book because it will make my book more inclusive and more people will buy it. Um, so if I felt if I felt that that was my, you know, in a sense of entitlement to any story, I can just pick a mix and put anything in, then I think then I, that would be I would need to be cautious. But because I'm thinking I daren't, um, that's when as writers I think, okay, where is that fear coming from, mm. and how how what's the appropriate response to that fear? So here is a bit massive taboo. Where I'm censoring myself, I can't write about um, this this section of society because I don't know about them, or or haven't directly experienced life from their position. Um, so so I I, I think is it, when you when you're writing from that sense of um, an awareness of your own poverty of experience rather than a sense of your power. As a, and privilege as a writer, I'm a clever writer. I can invent a, a, a black trans woman or whatever. Um, coming at it from humility, really, um, and saying I would love these voices to be part of the world I'm creating. Otherwise, I will end up creating a, a world in which everyone's white mm. or everyone's cisgendered or whatever, which would be. Um, I would that would sadden me 
but but so so it's that that constant um what's an appropriate challenge to me as a writer um and i you know i won't i won't always get it right i think but um th this is these tentative steps into writing mm. with integrity and and compassion and um humility about experiences that are different from my own the beautiful image of the writer as the servant to the becoming of something. Well, that's what I hope. And then then, then I suppose it might open spaces in which um, other other writers of, of different backgrounds and experiences think, oh, okay, I, I can now fill, the, fill this, uh, inhabit this space more fully mm. rather than, than yet again, here's a world in which I have no sense of welcome there's no door that way into this world mm. um so yeah so it's just it's, it's starting points i hope makes you something of a midwife and ah and, and takes <laughs> well, do you know what that yeah. is an image i i mm. think of particularly when i'm mm. thinking about my phd students um who who's you know it's a ma major major project writing a, a novel for example for a creative writing phd yeah. um uh, and also there will have there will be some kind of framing of that some critical reflection that needs to happen where we're now straying into territory that i left as a very lazy undergraduate <laughs> 40 years ago critical theory um so i'll have another colleague who 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 brings that expertise to the to the supervising team um but i ha i have to think well, it's not my project it's not my novel it's not my critical um reflection I don't have to be an expert. I don't have to know everything about this. I don't have to do it for them. Mm. But we as the supervisory team are your team of midwives. We will coach you through it. We will support you. We will bring in other experts where that's necessary. But in the end, you will be the one giving birth to this, this baby. <laughs> yeah, but I hadn't thought about that so much in connection with my own writing. Mm. Interesting about that. And it sort of takes us back to that image earlier of when you're in the zone you're attending to something that is beyond you and that's sort of that's the midwifery as well that you're really, yeah, or, you're really or being playing. the birth mother <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah 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 okay mm. interesting i'm curious catherine um about the i guess the vantage point of writing fiction in a sense that I'm wondering if maybe it gives you more of a zoomed out or bird's eye kind of perspective on all of these issues that we're, they, we're dealing with. Because in day-to-day -day life, we're, we're sort of, you know, mired down in this particular disagreement, that person who thinks or feels that way, this big issue we haven't been able to solve yet. And, and it's a very sort of heavy um, and, and close-up sort of view that we have to the things we're facing. Whereas I'm wondering as a writer, if it gives you the power to almost disengage from it in the incredible close-up sense and have this broader perspective where you maybe see the playing field of, you know, what we're going through in the, the spiritual and religious traditions and, and globally in our communities to, to have a, a sense of what's actually going on there in a, in a clearer, maybe um, more balanced and objective way. Yes. I think it helps me. So, so I, I'm one of those people who would probably say, how do I know what I think till I see what I write? And it's through, through the working through of, of um so so i have a strong sense when i'm in the process of blogging and as the deadline approaches whether that's the sunday night release or or the 
um, end of the month release where I'm basically trying to channel what's in the air. Um, uh, so it'd be like a big satellite dish that's just incoming stuff all the time. Um, mm. And it, it does definitely help me because um, it's through mediating those big things which we have no control over through the lives of imaginary characters and offering some kind of consolation through that process that, that I, I, it consoles me as well. I feel less alone. I think that's what it is. Um, and particularly during the various lockdowns and that sense of isolation. I was incredibly lucky um, uh, that I was I was with, you know, my my husband and my oldest son and his his family. We all s spent the first lockdown together. So we weren't we weren't isolated in the way that, say, single people were. Um but we were isolated as, as that family unit, that household. Um, and I think a lot of us did feel very alone and adrift. And, uh, and, and so we'd get on. So people would be doing the Zoom and Zumba kind of, uh, let's, uh, let's do a sourdough starter um, and work, work from the ironing board at home. And there was a kind of weird intensity to it. But, but in the background the whole time was, was fear, I think, that... And, and standing behind the fear of COVID was the fear of uh, the climate catastrophe. How do we how do we continue to live our lives against that backdrop of fear? Um, and I by showing how my various characters were were managing and fictionalizing it. So once something's fiction, it's sort of got boundaries around it. I think. Um, and therefore it feels safer. So it, it helped me to feel safer, and I think it helped my readers to feel safer. Um, mm -hmm. But I did have to take notice of those big things as well as the tiny things that were happening. Um, and the fact that they are all contained in, in one container, which is the novel, um, that helped me. But, but I had to every time think, I cannot solve this. I can't solve it. I can't. I can't even see to the end of next week, and yeah. and it felt at times I can barely solve the challenge of writing this next section for the novel. But I just managed it, and I would just, you know, be be kind of proofreading it and chopping bits out and changing it right up to the wire, which was eight o'clock on a Sunday night. And sometimes I went over my deadline and and said, "Sorry, it's it's going to be ten o'clock." <laughs> but but that did it did help. It did help somehow. I haven't finished thinking about quite why it helped. Well, I'm sure it helped <laughs> readers. I think readers recognise, and you know, certainly as I was reading it, you know, you recognise your own emotions in the characters mm -hmm. when these are real situations that we're all facing. And I recognise the same trains of thought the same interactions I've had with others, you know, and, and as you see it, there's that sense of the shared shared human experience that we mm -hmm. have uh, on the backdrop of these these fears and concerns for the planet, for one another, for our church. Um, and yet there is that that comfort in hearing someone else articulate it and seeing just, just that humanity of, of the other. That is incredibly reassuring to hear um, as a writer because one of the, one of my mantras really was, if I'm feeling this, the chances are my readers are feeling it too. 
and, mm. and that seems to have been the case then. So every every week, I would think I have nothing to write. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why. Ah, oh, this disaster! I'm, I why did I ever say I do it? And that just became normal. So I, I eventually tried not to take too much notice of it because every week I noticed I did write it, uh, and it it did seem to hit the spot for a lot of readers. Um, but yeah, so so thinking, if, don't worry if you're feeling this. It's because it's in the air and everybody's feeling it or everybody, broadly speaking, who's sharing a similar experience um, will be feeling this. Um, so and then just the other thing I constantly said to myself was stay close to your characters. So rather than just thinking, how do I write about this stage of the pandemic or this stage this week when um, the referendum vote has, has gone um, to, the, to the leave rather than the remain um, group um, rather than trying to look at the big picture which I, I think there are plenty of political commentators who could do a better job of that than I can what can I do I think okay what would what would Jane and Matt be thinking this week given that Jane is a university lecturer um, and she's got this on-off relationship with with religion and God and and uh, given this and that, well, what will they? How will they react? Um, or how would Freddie and Ambrose react to this? Uh, so that was my way into writing about the the bigger political stuff, mediating it through the lives of a range of people. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, Volume 5 of the Linchester Chronicles, The Company of Heaven, is out now, uh, Catherine. Uh, what's next on the, the radar for you? Is Volume 6 coming soon? Well, I'm actually, uh, I think I need a sabbatical from Linchester. I, I'm, I think I've, I've given up saying that's the last one, I'm done with it, I'm never doing any more, because I think people just don't believe me now. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't have an, I don't have another idea for one. Um, I wrote the, the fifth one because basically when we got to the end of Tales from Linford, we were only halfway through the, the pandemic, um, if we can even call it halfway through. So it, was, it felt like the plot is only halfway through. I need to write an, at least one more. Um, but the blogging in instalments does require nothing else to go wrong in your life. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's a kind of high wire act um and i've got lots of other kind of commitments at the moment um balancing um looking after elderly parents with uh work stuff so I there's not much slack um in my life at the moment and i just think i need a rest mm. so i'm very much hoping that after uh, a, a sabbatical in australia <laughs> in the first first three months of next year um uh, the next stage will become clear. I think that often writers, you you write, you're, you're written out, you, you've written out uh, and used up the, the reservoir of your most recent experience. So I think novels tend to come out of uh, a life lived and reflected on. Um, and then you've, you've kind of, you're back up to date, you've used it all. Mm, so you yeah. just need to go a little bit more. <laughs> so I'll probably be doing some... Um, other type of writing next. I'm I'm, I'm quite interested in in trying to theorise my practice a little bit um, and thinking about 
creative writing and particularly the interface between the critical and the creative. Um, how, how do we talk about the creative process as practitioners? Um, I think, and I, th I actually think there's some very interesting stuff going on in Australian universities and that you're ahead of us on, on this particular debate. So I'm hoping to hook up with some academics while, while I'm over there. But um, I don't suppose we've heard the last of this particular cast of characters. I, I don't think I can leave it alone. I think I'll be, probably be back at some stage, just not in the <laughs> near future. I suspect I suspect one of your characters might have a three-month sabbatical in Australia, and <laughs> the Australian the Australian Church is rich with uh, stuff for you yeah. to blog about and to help us understand. Through the oh, that's interesting! I haven't thought of that. Your characters, yeah. <laughs> well, it makes some new characters. Indeed. Well, yeah. Sydney, Sydney did rate a glancing reference, so perhaps you could expand on that. <laughs> that was the satire can... at work, which I, I, I hope that the Australian readers would get. I'm not because a, a lot of my English readers were going, but she, Veronica just got away with it, and I thought, ah. But did she, though? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, for those who haven't uh, come across the books yet, they are the Linchester Chronicles. There's five in the series now uh, and a sixth to come after a, a bit of a sabbatical, uh, I'm sure. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. I've absolutely loved having you on the podcast. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.